Scarantino, and this is the Get the Fuck Off podcast. Every week, I'm going to be talking about a new topic to help you guys get the fuck off the shit that doesn't serve you anymore. But first, let me tell you a little bit about me. I used to work as a bartender, and I lived in the New York City bar scene. I smoked between a pack or two a day, and I was what you'd call quite overweight. I learned that the secret to adopting a healthy lifestyle is a series of mindset shifts. Unfortunately, they don't always come with an owner's manual, so I decided to start this podcast to give you guys the nuts and bolts without you having to do all the research on your own. Getting healthy does not mean you have to sacrifice your outstanding personality, and it actually can be quite a fun journey. I'm really excited to have you guys on that journey with me. Let's get off together. And welcome back, everybody, to the Get the Fuck Off podcast. I'm here today with a very special guest, Julia Machine Shock, who I actually knew in the earliest part of my life. We were friends when we were teenagers. We worked together when we were teenagers. And now Julia is a case manager at a substance abuse treatment facility and is doing really great things. But Julia, I actually don't really know much about your story, so I was just hoping that you can kind of share it on the podcast. Absolutely. So it's crazy, quite honestly. Um, I'm sure you remember my mom, right? I do. And yes, I remember she passed away um, pretty young from what I remember. Yeah. So she was 49 when she passed away. Um, It was pancreatic cancer and it all happened like so fast in really the blink of an eye. I mean, six months, maybe. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a really long long experience for her, thankfully, you know, but that, um, was a huge contributor to my life, you know, because it's like, poor me. And actually I was listening to the, one of your podcasts that you did. Um, God, I can't even remember the title of it, but I had said something to one of my close friends about listening to it. So I shared the link and she texted me this morning and she was like, Oh my God, terminal individualism. And so we just like, we both laughed and laughed so hard because it's like, we thought it was only us. (laughs) You know what though? That's what it is. What is that? It was the, oh, terminal, oh, terminal uniqueness. Yes. That was the thing. And and that's how I, I mean, that's how I was, you know, I'm an alcoholic and I've been sober now, what, almost a year and a half. Um, So is this what happened? So is that where I I don't want to like jump the gun on your story? Cause you told me a little bit about it. Absolutely. So please continue. Okay. So, well, I moved out. So I was, we, her and I, we moved to Wilkes-Barre. I don't even remember what year it was. I was probably like 16 or 17 when we left. Mm -hmm. And um, we lived in Wilkes-Barre for like a year or two, whatever. She was diagnosed with cancer. And so rather than staying and watching all of that progress, I just left. I moved out. Um. And so throughout that process, I mean, it was awful. She, like I said, it was only six months, um, but she was so, so sick and basically wasted away to nothing in that time frame. And I couldn't, I couldn't watch it. So it was like super selfish of me at the time. Well, looking back, obviously hindsight, and I was drinking like a fish, like it was so bad. And I, it's almost mind blowing that I didn't realize that I was an alcoholic until, oh, I don't know, just like a year ago, if not even. Um, because the way that I was drinking back then. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea to know it. Like you don't, you don't know. Cause I think we in society have this idea of what an alcoholic looks like. So you think, okay, well I'm going to work every day, so it can't be me or like, oh, I'm taking care of my family. I mean, I know that you have two children, three. I have a total four children. (laughs) You're, uh, did you, I birthed you. Go ahead. Sorry. So I birthed, I birthed three of them. So I Mm -hmm. have three daughters biologically mine and my husband and I actually probably seven or eight years ago took custody of my sister's son. So it's been quite a road. You have a lot of kids. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's like, that's a lot. That's a full house. Yes. Yeah. So there's six of us. We have three dogs, a cat, some fish. It's a zoo, literally. Right. Pure chaos all the time. Um, 
I was a disaster. And so I was drinking every day. Um, still like going to work and stuff at the time. And I, I would visit my mom every day, the day prior. So the day before she passed away, I was hungover and I didn't go and visit her because she, I mean, she knew I was drinking and she knew I was like partying and stuff with my friends and she didn't like it. So I didn't go the next day I was at work and her, my stepdad had called me and was like pretty abrupt about it and was like, you know, your mom just died. You need to get here now. You know, so for a long time, I carried like a lot of guilt with me about that because, you know, I should have been there the day before I should have been able to say goodbye. Um, and I didn't, you know, and I think that we hold our moms as, I don't even know, like up on this pedestal, Mm -hmm. you know, they're these like almost angelic beings, you know what I mean? And now throughout my journey, I've learned that like, she did the best she could you know, with what she had. Um, but it's been such a, such a long process since then. And so that happened August of 2000, 2006. So it's been, oh my gosh, I think this year will be 15 years that she's been gone. And so I just, I can't really remember much about that period after she passed away. Um, obviously because of alcoholism, um, but a few months after, you know, I, I got tangled up with this guy, wound up pregnant um, with my first daughter and he was just a disaster to say the least, you know? Yeah. Um, and at that time I lost my job because I just stopped going. So like, you know, deep depression. And so I ended up moving back into my stepdad's house that my mom had lived in and we didn't have like a great relationship but he did take me back in. And so I stayed there for a while. I was working and stuff and he met this woman online and they, I don't even know, formed some sort of relationship, which was also very toxic and alcohol fueled. And he threw me out. So I was like eight months pregnant with my daughter and like really with nowhere to go. So I had like garbage bags full of clothes and I stayed with my friend and her father in a one bedroom apartment in the dead of freaking summer because it was, I was, oh my God, probably June ish at that time I was right. doing, I was doing August, you know? So it God, was miserable. It was awful. I didn't, my car was repossessed. Like, Oh my God. I don't even remember how. I survived how any of it survived, you know, it was really just a day-to-day thing. Um, I ended up having the baby and staying there for a little while and found an apartment and was able to kind of move out. And it was one of those like subsidized housing kind of things. So the Mm -hmm. rent was based on um, my income, which at that time I just had the baby. So I wasn't working. And so I was getting assistance, like public assistance, food stamps, all of that stuff. And it is such a, such a never ending cycle, which is like damn near impossible to get out of. Yeah. It's hard. Cause you, um, your brain, you just wake up and you're in that high stress state where you just, you just fly back into what it was the previous day day, you know, and it's like a continuation of just like this repetition. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I had met my husband currently back then. And I mean, luckily I, I don't even know where to go with that. It's quite a relationship. We've been married now for just a little over 10 years, which is like mind blowing. <laughs> I remember you've been married a long time because I keep up with Facebook. So like, I, I remember when you you changed your last name and when you got married, cause like, you know, you don't keep like the way the algorithms, social media go, like it's hard to keep track of like when people get married, but I know that you guys have been together a really long time. We can always come back to that at any point, but I know that yeah. there was like a, a more of a crux to where you wanted to, I don't know where, well, actually, I don't know where. I'm, I'm kind of learning this as, as we talk about your story. Yeah, so there's just, I mean, God, there's a lot. <laughs> so I want to, so back in, oh gosh, 2014, 
was when things like started to kind of take a turn for the worse. And I think that's, this is probably the most important piece that I really just wanted to convey was that like with the whole mental health aspect and alcoholism and, um, depression, the whole, all of it. So back in like 2014, I was having these nightmares that were just relentless. So I started Mm -hmm. seeing a psychiatrist and I was going and I was seeing the therapist and they put me on like all these meds. Um, and nothing worked. So I would wake up in the middle of the night after having these nightmares, which weren't like monster in the closet nightmares. You know what I mean? They were like real life things, deep seated fears that could actually happen. So I would wake up in the middle of the night with this like overwhelming panic. Um, the best way that I could describe the feeling is it feels like almost impending doom, really like, like something really bad is going to happen. You know, like you just have that gut feeling and you were still drinking at the time. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Not, not hard. I was, I was always more of a binge drinker. So, I mean, I could go periods of time without drinking when I needed to. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's never, ever in my life been a such thing as one drink. It's an, there's no off switch for it. Like, and people, I think I would I just wanted to interrupt and I know that what well, we can come back to it, but a lot of the, no, absolutely. Uh, my listeners, I, I want to stress that that's totally normal. Like that that's normal because of the chemistry of how your brain works. So your brain, you know, especially since, and I remember, I remember, you know, I remember you from our teenage years. I mean, if you start drinking, I mean, you guys started drinking young, right? Like probably- yeah. I mean, when you start young and you go heavy at it, it's not, there's nothing wrong with you. It's your brain has changed in the way that it, it releases different chemicals, stimulants, dopamine, everything. And it learns very quickly behaviors and patterns. And it causes you to, when you're drinking, get this, every time you have a drink, you'll have a subsequent feeling of anxiety once all of those good chemicals wear off and they, the harder you hit it through your life, the stronger that feeling of anxiety is. And I didn't realize that either. I started drinking at 20. I was, I didn't even really drink throughout high school. And when I started, Mm -hmm. I drank fucking, I fucking hit it. Like I drank hard and that that's what happened to me. Like, and I never had an off switch either. There was no off switch. It was like, there wasn't one drink. If I was, I would rather not drink then have one drink. One drink right. would, would, would make me upset. Like, oh my God, this is the worst thing in the world. So I just wanted to, to tell people that that's normal. And if that's you, like, and if, you know, not you, Julia, but like the people that are listening, that's, that is, a, that's a real thing. And it's, it's, it's not because of a lack of willpower or a lack of anything. It's just, it's just, it's chemical. Right. Well, and my father was an alcoholic too. I mean, he, he literally died drinking milk. Like he died on his way home from the bar, you know? Oh shit, I didn't he know was, that. Yeah, so I was like five when that happened. So I was really mm-hmm. young. Um, yeah, he crashed his motorcycle and died that way. Oh, but he was the type that he would get up and go to work every day, but he was always at the bar before he came home. Right. And that you was know, kind of, so- yeah people say there is like a genetic, genetic basis to it. And um, absolutely. Which is terrifying. There's a part of it. And then there's a part of it that's habitual excessive use over time. I think that it's like, if you have those two things working against you, I mean, I have a genetic piece of it as well, but like, if you get both, then all right, you're, then there's that double whammy of it. But right. anyway, we're back at, we're back in 2014. I took us off track. I apologize. Oh yeah. No, I do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's okay. No, absolutely. So, um, I was going to the psychiatrist and I was, um, taking the meds that were prescribed and I was seeing the therapist there and nothing worked, you know, and they were like, you're bipolar. You're about, this is what you, these are your symptoms. This is what you have. You have to continue to take these medications. And it was actually to a point where I had to take a leave from work, a leave of absence from work because I couldn't function like I should, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but yet nothing helped. So I did, I took, I can't even remember how much time I took off of work. It was at least a month, possibly two. And I just couldn't be home anymore. You know, I had to do 
something. So I ended up going back to work and eventually stopped with the medication, fell off with the therapist, um, stopped seeing the psychiatrist, uh, because I felt better. You know, I was okay. Yeah. And then, you know, I survived for a year and a half after that. And then 2016, there were a lot of like familial issues and just really awful situations that had occurred, you know, again, like situations, nothing internal in me, but it just definitely triggered some internal stuff. And, um, I went back to the psychiatrist that I had been seeing prior, but the therapist that I was seeing was no longer with that group. So I just, I was seeing the, you know, physician's assistant at the time it was overseen by the psychiatrist who just continued to prescribe, you know, meds. And I mean, like serious, heavy duty med like antipsychotic medication, Jesus. you know, in conjunction with like sleep meds and um like clonopin, which is a benzo. It's highly addictive. So I don't ever and recommend how did you that ever feel when you were like in the middle of this, like was it a was it a fog? I mean that's a lot of that's a that's a lot. That's a lot going on. Yeah, it was a lot. Um I think I just kind of skated through. You know what I mean? It was almost like autopilot, actually, not even almost, it absolutely was autopilot, you know, just no emotions attached to any of it. Just getting up, doing what I needed to do. Um, the bare minimum, if not less than that, you know, daily. And right. then it just, things just kind of continued to snowball and the meds weren't working. So I was just kind of taking them how I wanted, you know, and what worked for me. So I learned quickly that I could not take my clonopin for a few days and then be able to take a bunch of it all at once and feel really good for a while. Well, can't even say really feel good, but just feel nothing. Right. You know, because that was all I wanted was just that emptiness instead of the anxiety right. and the panic and the fear. I just wanted to be just nothing, you yeah. know? You want, and, yeah. Um, it actually, there was a point where I had messed up my calculations, however, and I had run out of the clonopin and I called one of my friends and I was, she, I kind of figured she could help me out. And mm -hmm. I called her up and I was like, you know, Hey, ran out of my clonopin. Do you think like you can get me a Xanax? And she kind of like paused for a second. She was like, no, are you out of your mind? No. You know? So I think she kind of thought coming at that point too. And, um, in the mix of all of that, I had gotten sick, like physically sick. So I had bronchitis. Um, I was taking like a little bit of time off work and I finally went down to like an urgent care center and got, um, you know, like an inhaler and everything for the bronchitis and a steroid and failed to tell them like all the medications that I was prescribed, like the psych meds, you know? Right. So none of those systems were attached back then. I mean, that was five years ago. I don't, I don't even know if they're attached now, quite honestly. They might not be. I mean, they might not be, depending on what networks they're on. And if they, I don't know if they all that overlaps. I know sometimes pharmacies can pick up on that sort of thing and like contraindications. Um, and a lot of, a lot of pharmacies are better with that sort of thing now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they prescribed me a bunch of stuff and I was just taking it all. And I started drinking NyQuil as well. Because I found that that was a, I was able to kind of get to that emptiness with the NyQuil, you know? So, um, I can actually, this is all like leading up to really just like the climax of what had occurred. So I'm surprised um, that we're not at the climax. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, if you were taking this, this amount of medication, I, I can't even imagine how much. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it was a lot. And so yes. obviously, you know, with all the situations and all the medication and stuff, and I just didn't want to be anymore. And the, the very last day of all of that, um, all of my shenanigans, if you will, um, I can remember. So my, it was, it was March and it was the year that Easter was in March and two of my kids were away with like relatives doing sleepovers. And my husband and I were like, he, my, my husband said, I'm going to take you out of the house. We'll go for a drive, get some fresh air. Like you need to get better. So all of this happening, 
I thought that he had no idea like what I was doing, what was going on. I truly in my soul believed that he had, he didn't know. He was just clueless and oblivious to the prescriptions, to the NyQuil, to all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately for me, he knew. So I'm sure, well, that's, we like to think that, you know, as, as, and I'll call myself an addict, even though, you know, I mean, it was just alcohol for me, but I mean, like I was an addict and people knew, I mean, people know, people in your life see you on your, on spirals and, you know, you're just, you can't see the forest through the trees almost, you know, cause you're not present. Right. So he takes you out for this drive. Yeah. So we actually, ironically, ironically enough, we ended up out in, I don't know if you remember, but Clark summit. Oh yeah. So there, there's a state hospital out there. And so we were just kind of like driving around. Well, there's a park right outside of there. And so we stopped and we let the kids run around and play for a little bit. And I remember looking at my youngest daughter who was probably four at the time and just thinking like to myself, this is the last time I'm going to see her. And it was fine with me. Like I was okay with that. Um, and I think too, a huge stigma with mental health is like, especially with mothers, um, and like single fathers too, I'm sure. But the majority is mothers. Like, how could you want to leave your child? But that's not really the case. So in that moment, I'm like, she, what is she, what is she going to get from me? I'm a mess. I can't function. She's going to be better off without me. And I wasn't even having all of those thoughts in the moment. It was purely just, this is the last time I'm going to see her. And it was almost like a picture in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a crazy phenomenon. And so throughout the day, I had been texting a friend of mine and just kind of probably passive suicidal stuff. Like, you know, I really don't want to do this anymore. And she was concerned enough to actually call me and be like, you're not going to hurt yourself, are you? And so I was like, no, not at all. Ultimately, um, we ended up driving back to the house and, um, I might in the interim of driving home, I made my husband stop because I needed more NyQuil and I can't even that piece sticks in my mind because I can't wrap my head around the fact that he was willing to stop. And I don't remember if that was what I told him I needed, or if I said I needed to like use a bathroom or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I was able to get the NyQuil, drink it quick, get back in the car. So we ended up going home. I cleaned up the house. And I said, there was whiskey in the freezer. And so I lit these gorgeous smelling candles. It was beautiful. We had the window open and I just kept drinking. Um, I really don't remember much of that night at all. Um, but my, from what I'm told, my husband put me to bed because I was listening to like depressing music and I was crying. I was really tearful. And so he was like, you're done. You're cut off. You're going to bed. He put me to bed apparently multiple times. Um, I had 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 one of those like exacto knife razors somewhere. I don't know if I hit it. I don't know, but I got in my bathtub and I tried to slice my wrist. Like that was my plan. It's just going to be done in the bathtub. That was it. At the time, I mean, lucky for me now, like looking back, obviously it was probably an old razor and I must, I think I must've texted my friend in the middle of it because she showed up at my house and I ended up then at her house. So she took me from my home to her home where like two of my friends lived together. And so I was there. And I don't remember the transition of any of that, but I remember looking my one friend in the face and saying like, I am going to finish this. And so at that point they were like, no, we really think you need to go to the hospital. And when that all occurred, I was actually um, a crisis clinician in the emergency room. So that was my job. That is so that's, that's just, and so you knew, you knew it wasn't like you were just outside of it all. Like you, you were aware of what you were feeling and you didn't, you just sincerely didn't want to live. Right. Absolutely. So um, you value the, the lives of the people that you were helping. Right. Yours was just in your mind. Would you say it was just irreparable at that point? Well, or at least how you felt at that point. 
honestly, in that moment, looking back, obviously hindsight, we know what it is. Um, I always thought that it was me internally broken. So it took a lot of time and a lot of therapy and a lot of supportive people in my life to learn that it was the situations around me that I wholeheartedly had control over the entire time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the decisions that I made, the, the situations that I put myself in that again, feeling of, oh, poor me. It's only me. Nobody else is like this. Nobody feels this way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that took a really long time to get through that. So I want to go back to that night. What ended up happening? Did you go to the hospital? I actually, I did. I, I went into the emergency room that I worked in <laughs> and I ended up signing myself into the hospital, um, that I frequently worked with. Luckily I was able to sign in under my maiden name. So it wasn't okay. like everybody in the world knew who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I mean, that all kind of worked in my favor and I trust, I mean, even the people that were there, then I still, we're still all really close now, thankfully. Um, but I only stayed a very short period of time in the hospital. So I went there and I slept for probably an entire day and woke up. And then again, you know, the thoughts are racing, like, oh my God, I'm a parent. I have to do these things. It's, it was like days before Easter and I had nothing because again, I was just living bare minimum, if not less than that. So the psychiatrist that I was seeing actually covered the hospital that I was at, that I was admitted to. And so I saw him one, one morning and I was like, you know, it's good Friday. I got to get out of here, you know, Easter and my kids, yada, yada. And he let me out. Which he probably shouldn't have. Because he knew you. Yeah. And the interesting piece to all of it was like I had worked with him like on a professional level. So sometimes people can get let that get in the way as well because they can they can feel like, okay, I know this person. I see their work ethic. I see that I work alongside of them. And we fail to realize that somebody that you work alongside of doing that exact work can still be having that same experience. And obviously they didn't know, you know, what was right. going on with you medically or chemically right. or any, on any of that. I mean, they right. see you as, as a mother that's taking care of her children and, and doing a great job. And, you know, people, people can let that sway what they, right. what they do. It's, it's, it's a human bias. It's not, you know, but. Oh, Absolutely. So I ended up, yeah, I ended up going home right before Easter, pulled off the holiday, just barely. A lot of my friends kind of came together, made the baskets, did whatever we needed to do, um, and survived the holiday. Thank God. And I actually, on my way, I don't even know if it was when I left the hospital or had I been home for a few days, but I was able to track down the therapist that I had been seeing back a year and a half prior to all of that or two years, what have you. Um, that was no longer in that group anymore. Well, she had kind of, she, I can't even think of what her title is off the top of my head. I know she's a, I want to say she's a psychologist because she doesn't prescribe medication. Uh She kind of revamped her, her way of being therapeutic really. So she had gone on some, um, retreats of her own where she was really kind of diving into shamanism Mm -hmm. and real like holistic. And at that point, I was like, I'm gonna die if I don't do something. So I don't care if you tell me to stand on my head and quack like a duck. If it will save my life, I will do it. Well, you've also at this point (laughs) taken every single psychotropic drug that you know could possibly be, including some pretty serious medications. So you know, I think I think you know where that led you. Right. And so that was that was the ultimate thing. Like meds just weren't going to cut it. You know, I couldn't continue to function that way. Um, but still, even in that time, I didn't, I didn't know that it was all situational around me. You know, I didn't, I still didn't know I had control over all of that. And so I ended up, she had a private practice. I ended up getting in with her and I was seeing her literally every single day. Really? And yeah. And then there was a day where, um, a friend of mine came over and, you know, we were kind of just talking about what had happened and we were both drinking 
Um, I mean, we had gone through a few bottles of wine and I mean, again, I'm right. As soon as I'm, you know, had the alcohol in me, I just didn't want to be anymore. So we ran out. We had actually, we drank it all. And I said, Oh, I'll run down the liquor store and I'll grab another bottle of wine or two. So the liquor store where I live is across the street from family dollar. So I pull in, get the wine, what have you. And I'm like, I can run into this dollar store and I bet you I can get a razor. And sure enough, I did. So when the store bought the razor, what have you go sit in my car. And I like, couldn't even wait until I got home. So I cut my right wrist and it was bad. So obviously um, a new razor is a little more sharp than an old one is. I, and I did not ever take that into account. So I tried as my best to stop the bleeding. And at the time, was I suicidal? I don't really know. I said that I wasn't, I, I mean, I don't know. I really don't know where I was then. Um, you probably didn't home. know much about what was going on with you at all. I'm... No, I, I had no idea, none at all. And, um, so I got home and my husband at whatever point noticed the blood on my sleeve and was like, what did you do? And, um, you know, he ended up seeing it and it was bad. Now my husband is probably the most even keeled, calm person you will ever meet in your life. I don't think that I've ever even in our 10 years of marriage ever really even heard him yell but he yelled at me that night really and yeah so it was amazing terrifying he um was like I am going to 302 you which is obviously an involuntary commitment back to a mental health facility and I was like no 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 no. I'm fine I like please don't do that fortunately for me and having worked in the um the place that I did I was able to just go in get my stitches and leave. So I ended up with nine stitches in my wrist that night, which, I mean, I still have the scars, you know, it's. When you look back at all these, all these instances where this all happened, do you ever, do you ever wish that anybody acted differently about how they treated you as a patient um, in terms of all of that? Or are you kind of grateful that it panned out the way that it did, which we have yet to figure out. I mean, obviously you're here. (laughs) And you're doing well. Honestly, I am grateful to every single person. Um, Because I've always found that things work out the way that they're supposed to in life. Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer in everything happens for a reason. And had I been treated as an actual like patient or, um, you know, if, if every exact protocol was followed, I could probably be sitting in a mental health facility right now. You know, just the way society is and the way that medication is so overprescribed, you never know. So we're talking about this now. Um, are you taking any medication at all? No, actually, I the only thing that I will take at this time in my life would be like ibuprofen, Tylenol, and I take one five milligram melatonin at bedtime. That's amazing. That's also all natural. (laughs) So that's not even so. And you're doing incredible things right now. What ended up happening after that visit and and the stitches? So how did that? Yeah. Well, I just I continued with the therapist. So we did a lot of hypnosis and it took a very long time for me to learn how to meditate. Because I could never stop my brain. I just Mm -hmm. couldn't. That was, you know, people talk about meditation and mindfulness and being still and calm and you, nobody ever talks about the work that you put into it. Yep. It took a very long time. Um, we'd even done some work too, like I said, through hypnosis where I was able to go back um, to like a more childlike experience and kind of just thank my mom you know, and yeah, it's real. And I think we have a lot of times where we, in our lives, you know, as I start to encroach on this world, um, cause I've been kind of uh, an active participant in mindfulness and meditation now for a couple of years and that's, our, and, and having unresolved portions of your childhood and adolescence are, those are things that need to be resolved. And if you were moving along in your life in the way that you were in all the pain that you were in, there was probably quite a bit that you needed to work through and it's active work. I mean, 
I obviously want to hear much more about your experience. So continue, but I, but it is yeah. it's active work. Oh no, absolutely. Um, and I mean, honestly, like a whole, a whole side incident to all of that. Um, when I was like 10 or 11, I was sexually molested by a neighbor of ours. It was myself and a group of friends. And, um, he, there was this neighbor, he was like riding around where we lived on his squad and was like, Hey, do you guys want to go for a ride? Whatever we did, it got really inappropriate. And at that point in my life, I was no longer a child. You know, my childhood ended that day. And it took me until fairly recently again to realize that I never got to experience being a child. And it's funny almost that I, I don't look at my children. I feel like my children should be more responsible because I think like at my age, I was doing, you know what I mean? Like I relate myself to them and I'm like, I have to actually take a step back at times and think, oh my God, these are just little babies. You know what I mean? They're children. But because I didn't ever live that, you know, a traumatic event happened. And you, when we met, I think um, what we were 16, I was 15 when I started working at Burger King. Oh my God. So I was 15. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember that. I remember you guys as I remember you and all of your friends. And I I always remember us as little adults. Like as I think back. um, Yeah. For different reasons. We were never. Yeah. We were never children. We acted as adults. We drank like adults. We, you know what I mean? And it's just, I don't know. The life we lived was just so different. So, so different. You know, yeah. and I had a lot of, a lot of resentment towards uh, my mom at the time for not being like protective and, and allowing those things to happen and kind of taking my childhood away, you know, not that she really had any control over it, but again, um, you know, life happened to me like, oh, poor me, you know, and you were, and you were living where you were living and you, pro- and you know it's easy to blame somebody else. Like, well, you know, we are living here and then this person lives here. And now this person, you know, touched me inappropriately, did this inappropriately to me. I don't know how I, you don't need to relive the experience. I mean, we can assume it was the worst that it possibly could have been, but it's easy to, it's easy. I mean, it's, it's, it is, it's not your fault. You know, it's not your fault that these horrible things happen to you, but right as an adult, you have to take responsibility for it. And even if that means getting help, then it means getting help because otherwise you continue to hurt yourself, reliving the experience and reliving the upset and the, the, you know, even feelings towards your, like feelings towards your mother that were, that were congruent with all of these things that happened. Right. Absolutely. And it's not until, I mean, you really sit down and you're doing the therapy and you're doing the work that you realize, you know, things start to unfold and it all starts to make sense, you know, and it, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time to be able to get through those things. And medication just was not the answer for me. It was really just being mindful and relearning, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, and I had stopped medication and I'd stopped drinking because I found that every time I drank, that was where I went was just immediately like, I don't want to be here anymore, mm-hmm. you know? So I've been sober for four years now. So yeah, that happened five years ago. It's that been about awesome. four years. Yeah. Um, so sometimes awesome. it is a struggle, <laughs> but yeah. most times it's not, you know, um, at this point, I mean, I'm just trying to figure out how to do things I enjoy and learning more about myself. So how are you in that process? What's been going on? What have you, what, what things, what has steps have you taken towards rediscovering joy and things that make you happy? Well, I, I found that, um, I don't know if this is like an age thing, but as I get older, I am so fearful of everything. I, my husband laughs at me. He's like, everything makes you nervous. Sailboats make you nervous. Um, but 
there's like the alcoholism that pops in because in my brain, I think of something and I'm automatically at worst case scenario. I see a sailboat in the ocean and I picture myself on it capsized out in the middle of nowhere. You know? We do that. There's- we do that as adults. It's, it's, but it's all made up, you know? Right. Like, and I think, you know, from mindfulness that mindfulness is all about being in the present and the present is all we can control and anxiety, that severe kind of anxiety. I was just talking to a friend today who was telling me a story about how he didn't speak to a friend for a while. And he was thinking that his friend, his friend might come and kill his whole family, which he said, which obviously his friend isn't even psychotic, but he was thinking that like worst case scenario, I, I haven't talked to this person in so long. What if they're nuts and they come and kill us all? And like this, and I have thoughts like that, like, right. What if I write this, uh, what if I write a blog post about this person that I knew once and what if he's actually a murderer and he comes and kills me and what, and all that is, and I just want to let you know, like, obviously the sailboat isn't capsizing. My friend's friend is perfectly sane. My, uh, the first people that I write about are not going to kill me, but like (laughs) humans do this. We think of the future and we think about everything as a worst case, like, Always. I always like if I screw this up at work, I'm automatically going to get fired and lose my home and we're going to be living under a bridge. Like, oh, my God. Yeah. Humans do that, though. <laughs> we, we do it like it's it's everything. It's like everything is worst case. It's all made up. It's like it's the future. It's the ideas yeah. of the future. A good reframe. And I'm just going to offer it is that. In whenever you catch yourself doing it, because remember the future is completely made up. It doesn't exist. It never actually will ever exist. It will never exist because as we leave this moment right now, we're in the next moment, which is still the present. So the future never exists. It's it's right. It's never. So if you must think about the future, think about it. Best case scenario. Right. Cause it's not, it doesn't exist. <laughs> it's I know what a, what a phenomenon though. I mean, right? what a concept to really like, to really take in, because I don't think that enough people stop and realize that ever. ever. And I know with me and every single circumstance I come across lately, not as bad, but in the past, it's always been immediately right to worst case scenario. And that's where the anxiety creeps in. Oh my God. A hundred percent. I was working in a bar and I would think to myself, this is shit I used to do when I was working, when I was bartending in Times Square, I'd get an ID and you know, it's pretty, I'm pretty sure that it's real, but you know, the person looks young and I think to myself, oh my God, they're underage. That's it. They're going to leave here. They're going to get in their car. They're going to drive it off the George Washington bridge. I'm going to go to jail for the rest of my life. My freedom is gone. (laughs) Yep. All over one person that looked a little young. That had a valid ID. Like, this is like, this is what I mean, though. Like, this is the kinds of shit that we do. And I think people, people let them, that hold them back from all sorts of things, like exploring all sorts of experiences that they want to have. Like, I want to go on vacation here, but like, what if this happens? Like, what if this happens? What if we get like, what if we get Ebola? Like, it's just, it's weird (laughs) how the human brain, and of course, you know, you have children, many. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's, that is another anxiety factor in addition, because now it's not just your life. It's the life of all these young, young children when they're going, they're going to be fine. Right. You know, ultimately I'm sure. Yes. Maybe they'll all need therapy. I mean, we could all use therapy. I'm sure. I think that everybody can Um, use a little bit, a little bit of therapy. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, so this, this experience with this mindfulness. So you were working with the shaman. I'm going to call your therapist the shaman. (laughs) She, she was phenomenal. And she would do these like rituals that I wish I could name them. Like, I don't even know what they would, what they're called because I would literally go into her office and we would talk and she would do her thing. And, you know, there was a lot of sage and like burning of sticks and I would leave and I would cry. So that would be like purging the emotions essentially. Mm -hmm. And then I would feel better. And it took, you know, some months of doing this with her very, very frequently. And then finally I was able to kind of function again. And 
it was freeing, completely freeing. So give me an example of an, an emotion that you had to, well, I want to go back. So as I talk about alcoholism and mm-hmm. I talk about anything that you use to fill a, a, not fill a void as much as not feel something. And you've mentioned this a few times that you didn't want to feel things. And right. a lot of it's stuff that's unresolved stuff that you have to work through. Cause that's the only way, like you can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to, you have to go through it. How did you end up making peace with uh, the time that your mother passed away and, and being able to forgive yourself for not going to see her and for the way that you were during that period of time in her life, in your life? That was actually, a, it's still a long process. Um, I can actually talk about her now without crying hysterically. Um, and I will even say that like mothers, they even just this mother's day that had just passed a few weeks back. It's always hard, you know? Um, I mean, I was in the car with my husband and I'm like just crying and he's like, why are you crying? I'm like, I don't want to talk about it, which is absolutely the worst case. You know, you, you need to talk about these things. Um, you also need to cry. Did. Right. Absolutely. Which is super important. And I cry all the time. So like people make fun of me because I cry over every single emotion. Like anger, joy, actual sadness, um, all of it. I literally cry all the time, (laughs) but I will say that again, um, I really feel like everything happens for a reason. So everything we experience in our lives, there's an, there's an end goal. You know what I mean? There is a thought behind it. There's a plan behind it. And so had she not passed away, I probably would not be the person that I am today. Honestly. Um, we were super codependent and I would have never grown up. Yeah. When she, when she died, I had to be an adult, like in real life, you know, it wasn't like, mom, I need some money or mom, you know, what do I do about this? You know what I mean? Like I, I, I leaned on her as my crutch all throughout my, pretty much my entire life. You know, I was the youngest. So I have one older sister who, um, she's nine years older than I am. Yeah. When I, uh, when we knew each other, when we were young, I don't remember her living with the two of you. It was just you and your mom, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So, I mean, she was already, she was gone and moved out as soon as she turned 18. And mm-hmm. so even still, like, we don't even have that great of a relationship. She's got, um, some addiction issues as well. Ultimately, um, thankfully, actually she's, clean and sober at this point, her and I can talk, we can have civil conversations. Um, but it's again, really superficial. And that's something that her and I will eventually, I'm sure have to work through. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, I mean, she's, she's going to need to want to, and I I think you've done a lot of the inner work and you're in a place where, you know, you have to be able to, and you were, this is like, Going back to the moment where you were talking about being in Clark Summit um, and thinking about your kids and that this would be the last time that you would see them and how people could say about mothers being okay with leaving their children. And I think it's important to note that like you have to be able to take care of yourself first and foremost. And if you can't, you can't, you can't be anything for anyone else. And I think you've done that work so you could be the best you could be for your family, but that also means your family that you've lost touch with that it would have to be you. You would have to do the work before you could reach out to her. And she also will have to do that work before anything, anything can change. Because so it's unfortunate that she's still that it's unfortunate. Um, It's good to hear that she's clean and sober. And so, from what I understand, she's well. And, and like I said, I mean, we have, um, we do have contact every now and again, and it's, it's really superficial at this time, which is probably what is best for the well being of the both of us. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't talk about like deep seated emotions. It's really just like mascara brands, <laughs> but it's better than any relationship with her has been probably ever. So I'm grateful for that. And maybe, you know, one day she does whatever she needs to do and I do what I need to. I'm not ready myself to have an emotional relationship 
with her. I can't. And I know that I hope for in the future, you know, that would be great, but it's not today. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of work of letting go in that situation. And it's hard. It's hard with family because family, there are triggers with family, you know, family operates with a dated version of us. Family knows us for the longest amount of time. There's all kinds of factors, especially, especially with your having your, your mom having passed and, you know, it's tough. It's really tough. So yeah, I'm sending you love for that. <laughs> well, thank you. I wanted to talk about your job now because now you're working with people in recovery, which is super fascinating. So tell me about that. Oh my God. It's amazing. (laughs) I want to hear all about it. So, um, I actually, my husband and I, it's a newer facility. And so my husband and I went to the grand opening. Um, so that would have been a year and a half, actually going on two years ago. And so we went and we toured the facility. And as soon as we pulled onto the property, I just like, we like parked the car and we're walking in and I just had this like overwhelming feeling of like, this is where I belong. You know, it was just, Mm -hmm. everything just felt right. And, um, I had known some other people that worked there that, you know, really started it. And I had for months and months, like put an application after application after application. And finally I got a call back. Um, but I think too, that even in that time frame, like there were things that needed to happen in my life before I could do the job that I'm doing now and do it well. You know, I mean, at, the, at that time when we did the grand tour, when they had the grand opening and we did the tour of the facility, probably a year and a half at that time, I had left the emergency room and I had, I thought, okay, I'm going to take this other job and things are going to be great, you know, again just trying to make changes to the situation. Because at that point I was just kind of learning that I did have control over my life and I did have control over my reaction to things, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I took the other job and it was a day job, like Monday through Friday, but it was so far removed from the consumers that it just wasn't me. So I am like hundred percent hands-on person. I hate paperwork. I hate documentation. It is literally the base of my existence. I hate it. I could spend all day with consumers or patients. Um, and I, if I didn't have to ever write in a chart again, oh my God, I would be the happiest person in the world. And, and you have such a, such a great personality. I mean, it's so infectious and, and loving. I can see how you would not want to be stuck behind a desk doing paperwork. Yeah, no, I'm not a desk person ever at all, not even a little. And I was working with the intellectually disabled population, which is a population that I cannot relate to whatsoever. I can't, there is no experience in my life that I can draw from. And I just have this empathy for the consumers and for their families, because like the majority of people, well, everybody really with intellectual disability was born that way. Yeah. You know, and I can't, I still, even to this day, can't wrap my head around it. You know, it's, I don't understand. Very low IQ. I mean, they just have, what is it like below 65 or 75? I'm going to say that 60 ish is that, is that borderline. I feel bad that I can't, I can't rattle off the, the exact number off the top of my head, but I mean, it, it, your mom would be so ashamed. My mother would be, she, she doesn't listen to this, but she would, she'd be like, Andrea, how do you not know about intellectual people with intellectual disabilities? But anyway, uh, so please continue. I, I feel that I interject so much. No, 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 no. Um, so I did that for two years. And I just couldn't, I could not do it anymore. My paperwork was awful. My documentation was behind. It was, it just, I had burnt out so quickly in that position. And I was working so hard because I enjoyed spending the time with the consumers mm-hmm. and not doing what I really needed to do. Um, so I had a, at one point or another applied for this other position through, um, through a private company, which would be very similar to what I had been doing, except for it was with the aging population and people with physical disabilities. 
So when I interviewed for the job, they explained it to me and I was like, oh my God, this is the same thing that I'm doing now. Like whatever, fine. So they offered me the position and in the offer they had that salary increase was crazy. So I was like, oh my God, 40 hours a week. I hate my job now. This is fine. I can do it, whatever. And I lasted six months. It was very difficult. Um, Not my cup of tea at all. It was actually like a remote working. So I was working from home and I had started in December. COVID happened just a few months after that. So I couldn't even leave my house to do visits, to do assessments with patients. I'm doing phone assessments, which is like mind boggling. You know what I mean? How do you, how are you on the telephone with a woman that has dementia and is hard of hearing and asking her these like questions for a three hour assessment? Right. Yeah. My Siri is talking to me now on my watch. She's she's invited to be on the podcast. Um, (laughs) You know, but it, it, but yeah, especially since you absolutely couldn't do anything in person because that was the most compromised population to be, to be. Absolutely. So six months. So now we're into 2020 um, for a frame of reference. So this Mm -hmm. is, you said you lasted six months. So that, does that lead us to what you're doing now? Yeah. So I was able to resign in June of 2020 and I started um case management where I am now um July of 2020 so it this July the beginning of this month or the beginning of this July excuse me will be a year and it's just flown by tell me the most rewarding thing about the work that you're doing I just I just love the people so not only do I have a phenomenal team with me so there's six of us total. And then including our supervisor, there's a seventh, um, case manager and it's, it truly is like our little family, you know? Um, I mean, I can, I can say, Hey, listen, like I need help with this. And everybody's like, Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. And then the patients are just so grateful. So in so case these, management, these are all people in, in recovery. Yes. Yeah. So it's a substance abuse treatment center. We do inpatient um we do detox and residential so it's like a 30 some day program um but in case management we deal with all the external stuff so any anything that you would need to tend to in your life outside of your substance use is what we handle so that you're not completing treatment and then leaving and then life slaps you in the face you know so you're, and the, you're the perfect person for this because you had to tackle that part of your life that was affecting all of those things. Right. Yeah. And I love it. (laughs) Like 150%. I, there's not, I could not imagine doing anything else right now. You know, and I play like, I play with the idea of going back to school and, and finishing my bachelor's and stuff. I have my associate's degree right now, but I play with the idea of going back and finishing and, and moving on, but it's like, where do you go from there? You know, what more can you do? And if I leave, is it going to like, what's it going to look like? So. Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing in life is to, is to be where you want to be and do what makes you happy. And if you're saying words like, I love what I do, you know, I, and, and you're, you're happy, then that's great. Then, then what, then you're, you're where you need to be. And I think like you can take a look at going back to school and you can do that or you can not, but I would, but I would say going back to what we talked about before, always think about a best case scenario, you know, and if you want to do it, don't think too much into the details of how it could go wrong. If you do, because it won't, you know, but like (laughs) if you're happy and you love what you're doing, that's really amazing. And I know you're probably making a wonderful, I know I'm not probably. I guarantee you're making an incredible difference in the lives of these people because they need somebody like you needed right. somebody like I needed Absolutely. somebody like we needed somebody. Everybody needs somebody. I wanted Absolutely. to, as we come to the end of, of the hour, really, I wanted to ask you if you just had anything that you wanted to say to people that are perhaps in a situation like you were, where they might be feeling like they are, taking too much medication or things aren't working for them or they're stuck in feeling numb or they're stuck in feeling like they don't want to live or any of the things that you've experienced. I just want to say that 
there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Like life does get better and it is worth living. And I can now wake up every single day and think like, oh my God, this is great. You know, as opposed to waking up in the middle of the night with this impending doom and overwhelming anxiety, it's hard work. It is difficult, but you can do it. You know, Mm -hmm. um, if you don't feel right about it, then it's probably wrong. That's, that's kind of been the, the takeaway for my entire life is just doing things for me that feel good for me and that kind of serve my soul, I guess, as corny as that sounds, but it's really all it is. That doesn't sound corny at all, lady. That is, that is the, that is what I preach. <laughs> serving what, your soul. Yeah. Serving your soul. And if it's not a heck yes, it's a no. Right. Um, some people and like to okay substitute to fuck. No. Yes. Yes. It's okay. It's a complete sentence. Absolutely. And I think especially as alcoholics, recovering alcoholics, codependents, all of those things that we, we, both of us have claimed to be at one point. Right. It's absolutely okay. What are yeah. some small, really quick, what are some small steps that, that, that people can take to start getting on that road to feeling better and to not feeling like tangible things. I say this all the time. Pick up the goddamn phone. Just pick up the phone. Call somebody. That's it. That's all you have to do. Yeah. Everything to, will to... fall into place. If you don't say what is on your mind, it will weigh on you. Absolutely. I think it's community and one friend. I mean, one friend. Yep. And honestly, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but I would say if you're in a relationship with somebody, it might not even be able to be with them because there, there is a, an element of enabling that happens in relationships just out of sheer love and, you know, reach out, reach out to somebody that somebody that, that is unbiased, that can, that will help because somebody will help. Like people will help your friends help you. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And my husband was huge in that too. So, um, he's a, he, he was a drinker as well and we would do it together, you know, and it was difficult. And for a long time in regards to alcoholism, I said, Oh, that's his thing. You know, that's, that's his thing. And so we had had a conversation one night, I had like a breakdown and I'm crying on the bed and he's like, what the hell is going on with you? I had had a conversation earlier in the day with somebody who said to me, Julia, what would make you think you're not an alcoholic? And I was like, oh my God, I had nothing. You know, I really, I didn't have a good answer to that. Mm -hmm. And so in having this conversation with my husband, um, he kind of like chuckled a little and said, Julia, you're an alcoholic. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, like you're freaking right. You are absolutely right. So it took a really long time for me to understand. And all of that time spent thinking like, it's me, I'm broken. I'm the only one that thinks this way. I'm the worst. Everybody hates me when no, I'm not the only one that thinks this way. There's a whole world of people who think this way too. And we can talk to each other about it and laugh and get through it. And we have to, we have to talk about it. And that's the thing we have to. And that's kind of why I wanted to start the get the fuck off podcast, because I want people to talk. And what happens is there's so much stigma around sober communities that people don't want to talk to each other. So if you're like, you're in this recovery community You don't talk to the people outside of the community. So there's like the disconnect and people on the other side still don't realize like, oh shit, like, no, I'm like this and we can all talk about this. And this is the shit that happened. And this is how we are. And it's good. And I'm so glad that you were able to come on and tell me and to, to just share your story, you know, with all of us, because it's so important. You have such an important voice and like, it was so, so awesome to hear it. Well, thank you. It was really important. I felt at least to be able to to share it and to say like, if you feel like you're the only one, guess what? You're not. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a whole world of us. So I would say, yeah, absolutely. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was so nice having you. 
Thank you for having me. And that about does it for today on the Get the Fuck Off podcast, guys. Julia actually does not speak in vocal fry. That was just the last little lag of our recording. But it was so nice having her here. It was actually great catching up. We've known each other a really long time. She's doing big things. She inspires me greatly. So I'm so happy that she was willing to come on and be a guest. If you guys are struggling in any aspect of your life, like Julia said, please pick up the phone, reach out for help, reach out to somebody There is somebody that will help you. Somebody will be there to help steer you in the right direction. I can't stress enough how much the importance of not going through things alone really is. It's so, so, so important. If any of you have a story that you want to tell on the Get the Fuck Off podcast, please reach out to me, Andy, A-N-D-E-E, at getthefuckoff.com. You can also visit me on my website, getthefuckoff.com. And you can reach out to me for anything, guys. I'm always here to help you with anything that you might need help with. Until next week, guys, it was really nice having you all here. Take care, be safe, and I will see you back here next time. Thank you.